0: And so I think it's it's instructive for us uh, if I mean we were already asking questions in the church about what it you know what it looks like to reimagine how we do ministry. Amen. Um, now I think the question is even more it's more of a burning platform because what these protests have accomplished in two weeks is more than the church has accomplished in the last two decades.
1: Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin-Connor, your host.
2: I'm Abigail Visco-Russert, co-host and co-producer.
0: And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer.
2: This is one of our bonus episodes where we share the full interview we conducted with Pastor John Robinson from St. Peter's African Methodist Episcopal Congregation in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Pastor Robinson shares about his experience of ministering to his community just three weeks after the murder of George Floyd at the intersection of 38th and Chicago, fewer than five blocks from his church.
1: This interview was first featured in our episode entitled, Protest and Pastoral Identity, which also features the insights of the Rev. Dr. Montague Williams and rising ministry leader Ni Ado Abrahams. You will hear Pastor Robinson reflect on his call to ministry, his approach to pastoral care during a time of grief and protest, and the scriptures that sustain his ministry of presence and prophetic witness.
2: We hope you enjoy this full-length interview with Pastor Robinson. All right, so Pastor Robinson, can you start by just telling us your name, where you live, and what work you do? Uh,
0: Yes, Uh, and again, uh, thank you all for uh, this invitation uh, for what is, uh, I believe, a critical conversation. Uh, I am John Robinson. I am the senior pastor of St. Peter's African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in South Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, uh, about five blocks from where George Floyd was publicly lynched on Memorial Day.
2: Can you briefly summarize um, a little bit of what we are going to talk to, about today, Pastor Robinson? Um, and again, this this is fine to, to link into storytelling and feel free to go down, down rabbit trails if, if you'd like to. So you can take the brief out of it if you need to.
0: Okay. So um, for me, as, uh, as, as some of the questions that we'll get to uh, in, in the course of this conversation, uh, prior to Memorial Day, uh, I think we were all wrestling with uh, what it means to be the church, those of us who are in church spaces and uh, in seminaries. Uh, And working with denominations, we're wrestling with what it means to shepherd faith organizations uh, through a pandemic. Uh, And so COVID-19, in my estimation, began a season of exposure. Um, A global pandemic arrived and began to expose some things. Uh, inequities and disparities, for example, that people in marginalized communities have been living with uh, for decades, if not centuries. Uh, but the interconnectedness of us on a global level uh, has brought some things to awareness that I don't necessarily believe um, the the majority of the world was considering. Um this pandemic has kind of taken the lid off of some of those inequities and and disparities. Mm. Uh, And then we see in the midst of that uh, America's original pandemic of racism rearing its head again, uh, not just with George Floyd, but with Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor as well. Uh, And so I think the questions that we've been asking because of the pandemic are now being sharpened uh, and being uh, forcing us to ask and, and probe even deeper uh, because those of us who are in the margins have been dealing with uh, the original pandemic for our entire lives but I think the world now is aware that this racial pandemic uh, is more serious than, than than maybe they thought
2: and pastor Robinson when we when we first spoke, you talked a little bit about how you came into ministry and your sense of call into ministry, and I know that it connects with the way that you are that you that you are sensing a call to your particular ministry right now. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit too.
0: Yeah, so I um, identify very strongly with Jonah. Uh, my sense of call is is almost a mirror of Jonah. God was clear um, that I was that God intended me to be uh, <laughs> to be in ministry, and like Jonah, I went the opposite direction. <laughs> uh, like like Jonah, I re- resisted the call to ministry because I grew up in the church. Uh, my parents did not give me an option. Um, I I was in church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was in Sunday school. And so I understood what work in the church was going to entail. At least I thought I did. Uh, And I didn't want any parts of it. So I ran uh, for about four years before, Mm -hmm. like Jonah um, and like others who have attempted to run from God, uh, God is undefeated (laughs) <laughs> the gods <guys> never <laughs> lost, uh, mm-hmm. never lost a contest. Every person that God has called, uh, Amen. <laughs> have eventually, eventually by by hook or crook, some folks come to the realization sooner than others. My uh, realization, my light bulb prodigal son moment, took four years to germinate. But um, when I accepted the call, and part of the reason why I ran from the call is because uh, I, I had at least then a a rudimentary understanding of the level of accountability and responsibility Mm. that went along with accepting this call that being in a position uh, to shepherd people's souls and lives uh, was not something that I took lightly. And so I I ran from it for a while. Uh, When I finally came into ministry, I spent the first 13 years as a youth pastor. So, youth have always been uh, foundational to the way that I imagine my call. Uh, youth ministry has been, it is the foundation uh, of my ministry and the way I think about what it means to be called. Um, and so, I spent 12 years, uh, p- three of which just south of you all there at Princeton, mm. uh, in Trenton, at um, Mount Zion AME Church. In Trenton, and the, the that period of my ministry was probably the most formative um, of the almost twenty that I've been in ministry so far. Uh, we had we were blessed to work with a group of young people mm. uh, in Trenton who were not only bright and and talented and gifted, but were passionate about transforming. Their community, Because, you know, as you know, as you all know, Trenton uh, is not Princeton. Yeah. Uh, it's not Princeton in terms of the way it's resourced. Mm-hmm. It's not Princeton in the way that it has been invested in. Uh, there are a lot of challenges in Trenton as there are in inner cities around the country. And those young people that we worked with, uh, that God blessed us to be in contact with for those three years, were exhibited a determination at 11 and 12 years old to transform their community. Mm. Uh, One of our mentees went on to go to Brown University and then did a two-year stint at Teach for America. Uh, And early on, when she was probably 12, she determined in her mind and in her spirit that she was going to go into education so that she could impact policy so that people would not have to go through and have an educational experience like she had in the Trenton Public Schools. Uh, So those are the kinds of experiences that have formed my theology and my philosophy about what it means to do ministry. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Pastor Robinson, thanks for sharing um, about Trenton too. As we spoke about uh, before the call uh, started being recorded, uh, I live in Trenton and so I know sometimes that we we even spoke about how far it seems from Princeton in some ways, though it's not far at all. Those twelve miles feel like people ask me if I commute. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like not quite. It's like twenty minutes away. So I'm grateful. Right. I'm grateful for the 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 anecdote and, the, and just the realization of how special um, the children and the people of Trenton are. Um, I, I want to know more about your. Ministry context more about uh, Minneapolis. Um, I have family. My husband's family um, they are a very interesting group of people, and so he is from Des Moines, Iowa. Mm. But they they have lots of family in um, Nebraska, in Minnesota. Yeah. So while I'm not terribly familiar, what I what it gives me a sense of is that Des Moines has a very vibrant urban population, a very vibrant uh, group of black and brown people. Talk to us a little bit about, um, about Minneapolis. Talk to us about why George Floyd in this moment. And I know we're all, we're all making sure we remember the names of the, of Breonna Taylor and of, of the many, many people, but talk to us why George Floyd, why Minneapolis, um, why Philando Castile, what's going on in Minneapolis? What are, what is the setting Tell us more about your your context and your your being in Minneapolis and why Minneapolis is the kind of center of the world right now.
0: Well, let me let me start with a disclaimer uh, so that folks who are from Minneapolis yes. and, uh, will not light you all up with hate mail.
1: <laughs> please, yes, please, please. We don't want so hate mail.
0: Here, here's the disclaimer. Oh. I've I've been a I've been a pastor in Minneapolis for eight months. Okay,
1: okay. That's the,
0: that's the disclaimer. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I, I preface that uh, in that way so mm-hmm. so that uh, because I am in, by no means a subject matter expert on the dynamics that are taking place in Minneapolis. But I, I have had conversations with not only my members, but with other people in the community. And what I think is, is true in Minneapolis uh, is true in a lot of inner cities across the country, from coast to coast. The relationship uh, between the black community and the police uh, is is a common narrative, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but in Oakland and in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and in South Central Los Angeles, and uh, Houston, Texas, and all across the country. Um, Economic disinvestment uh, is another common characteristic and so all of these things that are true in cities across the country are true here in Minneapolis. Um, the vibrant black community uh, in the Twin Cities, there were there are two, really. There's the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul, hmm. uh, which is a very rich and historic black community uh, that in the 60s, the federal government, took eminent domain and ran I-94 straight through the middle of the community. So, uh, and then we saw the same thing happen in Minneapolis when the construction project on 35 ran straight through the middle of the black community in North and South Minneapolis. And so there's a history of tension, a history of disparities, a history of intentional disinvestment, a history of contentious, at best, relationships between uh, Minneapolis police and the black community. And so uh, you're you're mentioning of Philando Castile, uh, also Jamar Clark, Mm -hmm. who was killed by Minneapolis police, and now George Floyd. Uh, have all happened within the last five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the question about why Minneapolis, I think you'd have to look at um, the culture of the Minneapolis Police Department. You have to look at the culture of city government uh, and the city council and previous mayors. Uh, what's interesting about Minneapolis uh, and the Midwest in general, Minneapolis specifically. Uh, and I'm sure you all are familiar with this notion of Midwest nice.
2: Yes. <laughs> uh, and in Minnesota,
0: they call I it live Minnesota it. nice.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They, Minnesota nice. <laughs> yep.
0: Right. And so what it, what it is, is this very passive aggressive. Yep. It's denial you know, wrapped up in passive aggression. <laughs> Mm. where there's this facade of progressiveness.
2: Mm.
0: There's this facade of equality. Uh, And in reality, Minnesota is at the bottom of the list in terms of disparities, like 50 out of 50 States in terms of economic uh, disparities uh, as it relates to the income gap between white and black earners. It's towards the bottom of the list. In academic achievement between black and white students, um, and these things are well you know well documented these these realities are well documented, and so it begs the question you know if if, if Minnesota is so progressive, how can they be failing so miserably in basic
2: yeah. uh,
0: basic indicators of equality um, and so I think part of that is is all, all of that is you know is this classic cocktail that creates um, that creates tension that we've seen boil over, and then the other thing I, I would I think is important about this moment uh, because I've asked the same question. Uh, we had video evidence of Eric Garner being choked to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had video evidence of Philando Castile being shot in his while he was sitting in his own car. Mm-hmm. and so we've had video before, but this moment uh, I feel is again, it's a continuation and a magnification of the exposure that began with COVID. So we're now in, and I was talking with a good friend of mine who's a Princeton uh, Theological Seminary alum, uh, Reverend Dr. Anne Marie Mingo, give her a shout out. Uh, just yesterday, she she brought up a, a, what I think is a, an astute observation. Because of COVID, the things that Americans turn to to distract ourselves from these difficult conversations; those things have been removed. Mm.
1: Uh, I can't turn on ESPN. Mm-hmm.
0: I can't get lost in the baseball stat sheets. Yep. Uh, can't can't get lost in following the NBA finals and playoffs. Uh, and so we're being forced, I think. So what makes this different is that we're being forced to confront it yep. in a way that is similar to what happened in nineteen sixty five during the march and the quest for voting rights, that what had the, the culmination of the signing of the Voting Rights Act bill didn't just happen overnight. Uh, people marched for years and protested and demanded change, uh, but it was not until people around the country saw the brutality inflicted upon those protesters as they attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge the first time mm-hmm. that the national conscience was pricked. I think we're in a, we're in a similar moment, mm-hmm. uh, right now.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's like, I think it's an, it, well, so many things you were saying, cause I a thought I've had is why now? I mean, cause we've seen, like you mentioned seeing the video, I feel in some ways about like Philando Castile's, the video with the, mm-hmm. with the daughter in the back of the car. If we can't change in that moment, even if right. it's just for right. that daughter, if we can't right. change in that moment, what, I, I really don't understand who we are as as a people, and so, it, but then it just keeps happening. Yeah, so it just keeps happening, and I guess my my follow up would be, if you could just kind of walk us through getting more like granular. The day that this happens to George Floyd, yeah. what is going on in Minneapolis? We are in a uh, this moment of COVID, we um, I, I have read that George Floyd had recently lost a job. You please correct me if my my facts are off, but had recently lost a job due to COVID or had was out of work. What was going on for Minneapolis and for you that day and for the the people within that five block radius? What was happening?
0: Yeah, so for me personally, I was actually in Chicago on Memorial Day when it happened, uh, and when I didn't find out about it until. The next morning, it was uh, Tuesday morning. One of my members sent me the link um, and I, I watched in horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew when I clicked on it, what, what, what was going to, but I, I knew what I was going to see and I couldn't, I couldn't look away. Yeah. Uh, but I sat there horrified. And so I was in Chicago Um, and I'm, and and I'm realizing that not only is this tragedy unfolding before my eyes, but it's unfolding five blocks from the church I pastor. Mm -hmm. So my first instinct as a pastor was just to begin calling my, my people, uh, calling my members to make sure that they were okay. Um, you know, to the extent possible in a situation like this. Uh, it was a couple of days later, I made my way back to Minneapolis, uh, to stand with the community and to provide a physical presence. I, I, I'm a strong believer, uh, generally speaking, in the ministry of presence. Uh, as a pastor and as a, a child of God, I think there's power in our presence, which has been challenged tremendously in a viral global pandemic, but yeah. nevertheless, um, so those are my initial thoughts. I, I really uh in addition to simultaneously mourning and weeping for George uh was to reach out and 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 make contact uh even virtually with with members of my congregation and members of the community because um that is my role as a pastor.
2: I I'm wondering then a- after that, you know, you told me a story about the way that you specifically reached out to young people and I'm wondering if you can tell us mm-hmm. a little bit more about that now.
0: Yeah, so again, I, because I was a youth pastor for 13 years, uh my my heart and my passion is is youth. What we, I got on the phone with a couple of folks, um one of my members um, so there I'll tell two stories here. One of my members um was in contact with the family of the young lady who filmed George's murder. Wow. Wow. Uh she was she had gone to the store. Uh because her 9-year-old cousin uh, had been pestering folks in the house for, you know, an hour or so to get somebody to go with her to the store so she could get some gum or some candy or something like that. Um, and so the the 17 year old who, who ended up filming it relented and said, okay, I'll go with you. And so she takes her nine year old cousin to the store. And as they, uh, as the nine year old comes out, the chaos surrounding George Floyd and his interaction with Minneapolis police ensued. Uh, so she had the presence of mind to, pull out her cell phone and film the entirety of the exchange in the last essentially nine to 10 minutes of George Floyd's life. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, and I had that conversation with my member and she was in crisis herself because she's got daughters of her own. uh, But these, she, the family reached out to her somehow in some way they got connected And so she was calling me to provide pastoral care for her. And as she's sharing these stories with me, I began to think about other young people and how they might be processing this. And what's going on in their minds and in their spirits as they're dealing with this in real time. So we convened a virtual session of about 15 to 20 youth aging from 12 to 20 223, simply as a place so we can hold space for them to process what they were going through. So this was on, the video basically emerged on Tuesday as well. That's when I saw it Uh, on Thursday. So two days later, uh, we convened this space for youth. And, you know, they were, were the, the wound was fresh. The grief was fresh. The trauma was fresh. Uh, but in the midst of their trauma, in the midst of their lamenting, as youth typically do, they expressed and articulated a an energized hope that I was not expecting that soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it energized and refreshed me. Um, but that's the, so we we really we had no agenda, no expectation. We really just wanted to hold space for young people because oftentimes. Uh, young people get neglected and left out of these kinds of um, conversations. And we wanted to hold a space specifically for youth. Uh, we, You know, there were a whole bunch of adults that wanted to get in and we uh, limited the participation of adults to two or three. Um, and we, we created a space for young people to just come uh, to log on and, process in a in a in a real and authentic way what they were experiencing in in that moment
2: you you mentioned pastor that there there was something inside of that conversation that energized you yes and that takes me to this question of you know what are the thoughts and feelings of you as a leader who isn't, you know, it, at least in the moment when it happened on Memorial Day, you're not in physical proximity, yeah. you know, to your congregation. What went through your mind, your heart? Can you can you walk us through that as a leader, as a pastor?
0: So I alluded to some of it a little bit earlier, but uh, what was really going on was a, a, a wrestling internally hmm. uh, and an attempt, a desperate attempt to balance the rage that I was feeling with my my call as a pastor to provide leadership, to provide um, counsel, to provide pastoral care, um, and it 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 reminded me. I mean, now that I've had some time to think about it, in the moment I wasn't thinking about this at all. I was just I was outraged and um, simultaneously wanting to make sure that my people were okay. Uh, but it reminds me of uh, now ends the wounded healer hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the sometimes seemingly impossible task of ministering to people uh, out of your own brokenness. And I was, I was outraged. I, I, was, I don't think I've ever been as angry in, in my well that's not true I've been angry a lot over the last 15 or so years mm-hmm. because these incidents keep playing out but this one because it was so close um you know that it could have been me I that it's five blocks from my church I, I've been at that intersection mm-hmm. I have not been in that store but I've been in the intersection I've been in that part of town and that it struck me in a way that that maybe others have not it, it, because it could have been, it really could have been me. Uh, it's, it's in my town. Uh, and George Floyd does not look that dissimilar to me. If, if I, 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 pr- I could have mm-hmm. fit the same description mm-hmm. that he fit. Um, and so that's what was going through my mind, uh, balancing and trying to, and really pleading, uh, to god to help me to handle this rage in such a way that it doesn't consume me
1: mhm yeah mhm mhm Abigail could I follow up yeah please if you have a quick yeah so you mentioned wrestling and it it um reminded me of a a phrase that um I've heard uh, Cornell West say and write about this kind of soul wrestling, doing exactly mm. what you were talking about, like soul wrestling in the midst of outrage and yeah. despair. And, you know, and I'm wondering in the midst of your soul wrestling, we are not, I mean, are we even a month and a half out? Not really from, no, we're not even, no, three weeks. We're not even thank you. So in the midst, cause you're, you're having to minister and and do the work of ministry and preach all, in the midst of soul wrestling. And so I wonder how do you preach in this moment and how do you gather the strength and the courage to preach any, any message, a message of power, a message of hope? How do you, a message of action, a message of whatever it takes to make a resilient people keep going? What do you, how do you do that in this moment?
0: Well, I, uh, you know, this is going to sound maybe a bit, uh, Maybe a little bit depressing, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I, I preach in this moment the way I've preached my entire ministry, because there's never been a moment in the in the 19 years that I have been uh, an active minister of the gospel uh, that there's not been some outrageous situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's not been one. I I have I've have had to stand and preach. Uh, the Sunday after a domestic terrorist murdered nine people at Mother Emanuel AME Church.
2: Mm -hmm,
0: I've had to stand and preach the same day that George Zimmerman was acquitted for murdering Trayvon Martin. Uh, I've had to to preach. I've had these types of preaching moments for my entire ministry. Uh, and So I guess for me, it's not about so much preaching mm. in this moment it's how do you preach um to a people who are strangers in a strange land and have been since 1619 and how do you pr- how do you communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have spent their entire lives living on the margins of society that is uh, the quintessential task i think of the black Preacher in the Black Church experience, uh, it is the lineage that we have inherited from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, you know how does how does Jeremiah stand and proclaim to a people, or Isaiah, who have lived in exile? Uh, it's the same mantle, uh, and to do that, I mean, that, and that. So the answer to the question is, I really draw upon the prophetic heritage of the Old Testament. Um, embodied and completed and fulfilled by Jesus Christ uh, and then carried through the, the, the strain of the black American preaching experience. And so I, I rely upon, you know, my forefathers and foremothers. Uh, I rely upon Richard Allen, who founded a denomination in the midst of dehumanizing oppression. Uh, and who did not allow that oppression uh, to diminish his faith or the faith of his congregants uh, did not allow that to in any way impede the ministry that they, that he and that they believed God was calling them to embody and so that that is the same heritage those, those are the same foundations that I stand upon those are the shoulders of that I stand upon, and, and and so doing ministry in this season is is challenging, but it is the heritage that has been passed down to me, and now the the mantle rests on my shoulders.
2: Thank you so much, Pastor Robinson, um, mm-hmm. for just giving us this glimpse into your call <laughs> um, and this story. The one. Th- Follow up. I want to ask is a lot of the way that that I see um, people on social media and the news coverage of Minneapolis is foca- focusing on protest, mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, about what it has been like to be five blocks from that location. Yeah. And one of the questions that's come up for us in other episodes of this podcast that we're interviewing for is um, this question around what protest is, and mm-hmm. specifically is protest a form? can protest be viewed as a form of worship and I'd love for you to reflect on that a little bit
0: so I have a few I have a few thoughts um and I think about. Again, going back to the Old Testament prophets um, and Habakkuk asking the question, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. That oracle, uh, that lament could very well have been written right at the intersection of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in South Minneapolis on Memorial Day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It is a form of lament. And for me, lament is absolutely a part of worship. Lament is the soul's yearning for God to make sense out of that which is senseless. And God's people have experienced trauma, have experienced brutality, have experienced dehumanization, uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is not a new phenomenon. Uh, And so it it is absolutely right, and I believe righteous, to ask God to help us to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, the protest is, uh, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, protest is a language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. But what people leave out is the next part of that, which he asks uh, the rhetorical question, what are the people saying that America's not hearing? Uh, so protest to me is righteous. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it interesting uh, that patriots, self-professed patriots, uh, who love a nation that was born out of protest, all of a sudden have a problem with protest. <laughs> I find that very mm-hmm. fascinating. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That the, that America's inception is an act of protest against the British monarchy. But all of a sudden, we got an issue with protest.
2: Wow. I have heard it said by some that one of the ways in which protest has sort of... Um, Oh, I don't know. Moved us. Um, protest is not obviously the thing that has moved us, but 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 brought it has brought people together in a mm-hmm. way that's reflective of what congregational ministry <laughs> um, could look like. Yeah, and yeah. and I and given your heart for young people and the ways in which young people have been the voices often and the organizers and the mm-hmm. the ones who are really pulling people together. I, I'd love for you to comment on the ways that you see young people playing a role in protest and what that means for the church specifically.
0: Yeah. So I've I, even before uh, George Floyd, I was having conversations with my leaders in the church and I, and I told them uh, while we were dealing with the, the COVID crisis uh, that, Adversity and crisis uh, magnifies. Well, first it reveals, and then it magnifies and amplifies uh, one's true character. And I, I said that was also that's true for individuals, and it's true for institutions. Mm-hmm. And so we saw that during COVID, we saw um, disparities in healthcare, for example, being revealed and then magnified as Black and Latinx communities were impacted disproportionately by, by COVID-19 in terms of uh, not only the, the health care disparities and the fact that they were dying at higher rates, but also in the economic disparities uh, because the jobs that were quote-unquote deemed essential uh, were being filled by Black and Latinx employees uh, who did not have the luxury economically of staying home and sheltering in place. Yep. So COVID or crises, I believe, reveal and magnify uh, who we are. And that's true as, as, as the church. So what we're seeing now with all of these protests, uh, it's not the church that is out front. Uh, it's not the church that is organizing. It's not the church that is making these demands and mm-hmm. has been the impetus for some of the change that we've even seen in two weeks mm. it's been it's been youth and what i have been attempting in you know my low 8 months of pastoring this church uh is the ability to develop institutional agility mm. Hmm. which the church does not have it, it hasn't had I don't know if it's ever had it it certainly does, hasn't had it in the last 50 years but uh, these young people and this is what this is what inspires me because they didn't they didn't call any meetings hmm. uh, they didn't take it to any votes. they showed up and they did what they needed to do and have been leading the movement have been leading not only the protest but the direct action. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're doing a town hall tomorrow night with the church and we've got a young person who's in her early 20s uh, who just called a bunch of friends got some donations together uh, and did a pop-up supply drive in St. Paul for about 10, 11 straight days Mm -hmm. didn't call any meetings didn't have to have anything voted didn't put a proposal together they just did it and so I think it's it's instructive for us. Uh if I mean we were already asking questions in the church about what it you know, what it looks like to reimagine how we do ministry. Amen. Um now I think the question is even more it's more of a burning platform because what these protests have accomplished in two weeks mm-hmm. is more than the church has accomplished in the last two decades.
1: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I want to follow up on something that you said with regards to youth. I, we went to a rally a couple of weeks ago in Trenton, and it was similarly, mm-hmm. it was young, it was college students from HBCUs, actually, historically black colleges and universities. They were from Morris Brown. They were from Spelman, one of them, but they're obviously all home for, for this COVID. And I okay. remember a friend of mine um, who is a, a pastor here in uh, in Princeton, actually, he said, it's a leaderless movement. Hmm. right? And I wondered, I wonder what you think of that. I have feelings, but I'm curious with what you just said <laughs> and the, and the strategic nature of young people, what you think about yeah. an older person. Um, And he's my age, so it's not that old, but an older person saying this is a leaderless movement. This is a leaderless revolution.
0: So I think as, as an older person myself, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I have I have no problem with that. I, I think we often make the mistake of waiting around for somebody yes. to, to to take the lead. Um, or somebody who will, will lead the way. And I, I think that may be why we've lost relevance as an institution. Uh there's I'm reminded of a quote, and I don't even know who the quote is. You know, you uh you all can Google it. But it says it's amazing what you can accomplish when nobody cares who gets the credit. Mm. And I think the problem with the church is, is and, and the way that churches even function within the same city, within the same geographical space, is that we've spent so much time jockeying for position and trying to decide who's going to lead it and who's going to be the face of it and who's going to get the mic and who's going to write this and who's going to, who's going to pray in this moment and who's going to be on program at this service. And have accomplished nothing
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. these
0: young people didn't ask any of those kinds of questions. they just went out and did what needed to be done and so I see my my job as supporting that movement i'm not uh I'm not and never have been the you know get out in the streets every day and protest um but i I do see um my gifts in this very specific way or this very specific season being used to, to support and provide whatever um, whatever the youth who are leading this movement, uh, whatever they need. And I think that's, that's, that's how I see it. Um, some of my colleagues don't necessarily see it that way. Some of my, some of my colleagues are lamenting the fact that it's a leaderless movement uh, primarily because they ain't the ones leading it. Mm-hmm so uh that's 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 my that's my take i think i think it's 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 refreshing and it's it's proven effective
2: yeah
0: I don't know that, that there's been a period of time in American history where we've seen this much um change in a two week two and a half week period and I'm talking nascar banning the confederate flag absolutely yep
1: absolutely
0: the n f l even though to me it still rings empty, uh, apologizing and saying they were wrong about it, the stance it took mm-hmm. against Colin Kaepernick. Now, if, you, if you're if you really sorry, give him his job back and give him back pay, but mm-hmm. that's a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Minneapolis public school system cut its contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. Mm-hmm. The Minneapolis Parks and Recreation Department cut its ties with MPD. Wow. Uh, the University of Minnesota cut its contract with Minneapolis Police Department. The city council in Minneapolis voted last Sunday to not only defund, but to dismantle the in Minneapolis Police Department. And then because they had nine out of 12 of the city council, it's veto proof. Okay. So whatever whatever they come up with wow. as an alternative, uh, so that, that that didn't just happen in a vacuum. That didn't, they didn't just wake up and decide right. we're gonna do that. It was pressure promoted by protest Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: and they didn't hesitate. They didn't wait until there was a quorum and a consensus.
2: I think you've already answered this pastor Robinson, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just so there's nothing left unsaid. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) How have you seen God at work in the last Mm -hmm. three weeks? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So personally the, the rage has quelled, Right, so that's an answered prayer. So I've seen God at work in my own prayer life mm-hmm. because there was a point where I was so upset I literally couldn't see straight. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's the personal level. Uh, congregationally, I have seen uh, church members display a level of resilience, even though some of some of my members live close enough to the epicenter. Uh, that they considered temporarily leaving their homes. Um, So I've seen a resilience in their steadfastness. Hmm. I've seen members step forward uh, and provide service in ways that I had not seen in the seven months prior. Uh, I've seen God at work in... The lives of these young people, and the, the leaderless movement uh, that Sushama talked about, uh, and I've seen the impact that they have made. Strictly by force of will, they they just decided that that this that enough is enough, and I don't know, um, I don't know why this particular case was the tipping point. Uh, I think COVID has something to do with it. I mean, we're seeing record unemployment, and so people aren't working. So why not go protest? Right. It's not like they got a job yeah. to go to. Yeah. So I think there's a this this is a perfect storm of events that has led us to this tipping point. Uh, but if you read Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, there's an element where you can't identify what it is that causes. You know, there's. You can do the right things. You can develop good habits as an organization or as an individual. Um, you can be faithful and diligent in doing. You know, staying true to your mission and your vision. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is and there is an intangible factor that you can't account for hmm. that causes this tipping point. And so, I think that's where we are. I don't. I don't know that we'll ever. You know. Um, social psychologists and historians will write about this thirty, forty, fifty years from now, and they may be better able to identify what it was that caused, you know, the whole tinderbox okay. to blow. But I, I think, regardless of what the what the reason is, the response has been where I see God at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I've never seen so much so fast in terms of organizations committing to substantive change, individuals changing their course, uh, and acknowledging what has been evident for those of us who've been paying attention all along, Mm. but uh, there's, there's an awareness now and there's even a desire, um, a friend of mine, Ibram X. Kendi, has a best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, mm-hmm. that you cannot get copies of. They're sold out. They've got to do another printing. Mm-hmm. Now, this book's not new. He wrote this book over a year ago. Right. <laughs> but now it's selling out. Right. So I see God at work in, in a lot of different ways. But the, the most inspiring are the ways that young people, uh, youth and young adults, are stepping forward and taking the mantle of leadership and not waiting to be given permission uh, and not waiting for somebody to come and lead them.
2: How do you think you, Pastor Robinson, have changed?
0: Uh, I have had to expand uh, my own personal <laughs> devotional life. <laughs> mm. I've, I've had to pray more deeply than I've ever prayed Um, and I think that's, that's what adversity does, right? It causes us to, to explore God on a, on a deeper level with more fervency and more passion. Uh, so I've, I've changed in that regard as a leader, this has stretched me. I I honestly feel like I have squeezed 10 years of pastoring into eight months. Mm -hmm. I was appointed, I was appointed to St. Peter's in October and You know, that was eight months ago, but it really seems like in some cases eight to ten years ago because there's so many things that have happened, so much change, uh, so much disruption. And so I have I think I've changed in my own thinking and developed a little bit more agility uh, just in my own thinking and ability to um, to respond to so much change. That's coming at once, uh, and so I also think that uh, I've been reminded of of where my heart, and my passion are for ministry, and that's with young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has this has um has brought that back to the surface.
1: Pastor Robinson, um, well, first of all, thank you. We have one more question, and we're we're looking at the time too. want to thank you for your time. Um, One of the things that I I wrote down and then I see that Abigail's written it down in our notes is this ministry of presence. Mm -hmm. So I've taken Mm -hmm. so much from what you said today, but I'm going to just really kind of uh, think about that and wrestle with that um, in my own devotional life. So thank you for that ministry of presence um, and, and the ability to kind of flesh it out for us too. thank you. Um, What would you say to, fellow leaders and ministers right now of all ages, of all Mm. denominations of all, like what would you say to people, to clergy leading in this moment right now?
0: That's a big question. It is. (laughs) So I, what I would say is in, in these moments of extreme challenge uh, is to go back to why you said yes. Mm. And that's that. So that's, it's a broad question. So I'll, I'll, I'll give a broad answer. Uh, go back to why you said yes. Why did you relent other than the fact that you knew you weren't going to win <laughs> your battle against God in the first place? But aside from that, it's <laughs> not that aside. It was it was a hopeless case. You weren't going to win. So, so good. <laughs> aside from that, why did you say yes? Why did you relent? What what is the foundational, fundamental Aspect of your of the way you view your call, uh, because I believe that whatever that is, that's what God is going to highlight and magnify in this season.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Again, adversity and crisis does not uh, does not determine who we are; it reveals who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, we're in crisis. We're in crisis, and I think maybe for the first time, I think we all can agree that we're in crisis. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that the world is on fire. And so as people who are called to address a world that's in chaos and on fire, um, we we are going to have to rely upon that which is fundamental and foundational to who we are, who we imagine ourselves to be as ministers, lay and clergy. Mm-hmm. There, There is something that God has placed in each of us. We all bear the image of God, but God has cr- has placed unique gifts within each of us that quite frankly cannot and cannot necessarily be used in times uh, of, of sunshine and roses. Mm-hmm. And I think back to, uh, to Esther and Mordecai's conversation and being called for such a time as this. Everything that we've done in ministry, every decision we've made. Every prayer we've prayed, every Bible study we've attended and taught, every sermon we've preached, I believe has been in preparation for such a time as this.
1: Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020.
2: You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.